I mean, do insurers make too much money? Maybe. Do hospitals make too much money? Maybe. Everybody probably needs to adjust if we're ever going to get out of control of prices. And we do deliver like a lot of high tech, high cost care, but that's like, it's a little inherently American. Like it's a little bit about sort of like pushing the frontier. It's a little bit in kind of the zeitgeist of how hospitals think about themselves. There was a death in the Senate. There was a special election. The replacing senator was a Republican when the deceased senator was Democrat. Right? I mean, a guy had a brain tumor and it changed the course of health history. You're listening to Masterminds, where we sit down with experts in science and medicine to talk about everything from the research of today to the innovation of tomorrow. This is Mishka, and I am so excited for this episode because we're talking to Dr. Karen Joint Maddox, co-director of the Center for Health Economics and Policy at the Institute of Public Health here at WashU. By trade, she is both a Duke-slash-Harvard-trained physician and health policy researcher. She now focuses on how to best improve healthcare administration. Where should hospitals funnel the most money into? What is the most equitable payment model? And how do we make care more accessible across vulnerable populations? If you have ever asked any of these questions, but like me, have also been too turned off by American politics to research this stuff yourself, this episode is for you. Dr. Joint Maddox has had an amazing career path that, oddly enough, all started in a freshman year federalism seminar at Princeton University. Um, this may be a longer-winded story than you wanted, but I took a freshman seminar on federalism because I needed to fulfill a requirement. And so it, it, like, I don't know, it fulfilled my writing requirement as a freshman in college. And federalism is basically introduction to policy, right? You learn about why the federal government controls certain things and why states are, you know, sort of devolved other other um, uh, decision points. And I thought, man, this is really interesting and this is really impactful. And so I ended up being a public policy major in college, despite doing um, all of my pre-med stuff and deciding to still go to medical school. And then later actually realized that you could merge these things. I thought when I had headed off to medical school that I was entering the life of basic science. (laughs) But then you get to the wards and think, wait a second, you know, these health issues are coming from poverty. They're coming from environment. They're coming from education. They're coming from our health system and how it's set up. And so it became evident then that I could actually sort of blend my interest in policy and those big picture issues with still being a doctor. Um, Clinically, I take care of patients with cardiovascular disease, but actually spend about 80% of my time doing research on health policy. The Institute for Public Health sort of brings together a number of groups who really focus on things that are bigger picture contextual stuff. And in this sort of era of COVID and of um, increasing understanding of healthcare disparities and health systems, our group, I think, has been sort of in the middle of a lot of the stuff that, that you've seen going on over the last year. So we have people within the Institute of Public Health who work on global health or who work on community health. And then our group focuses on health policy and economics. And so we have a center that's really split between the medical campus and the Danforth campus where we have um, a number of folks that are affiliated with our center within the Brown School. And then we have uh, folks over on the medical school side as well. We try to focus on 
big picture issues that uh, that impact healthcare. So some of it's uh, state policy around Medicaid expansion. We work on federal policy around safety net hospitals. We you know we try to sort of span the the range of things that policy impacts at the at the local, state, and national level. To begin to understand the economics of healthcare and the nuance in our own system first requires us to understand the concept of a market. For our purposes, we'll define a market as a group of people who want to buy a specific good or service. Now, the prices of goods in a market are influenced by supply and demand for said good. In the healthcare market, where there is a high demand for services and lots of suppliers, you might think that competition between different vendors will lead to decreased prices. But now imagine that within this healthcare market where health services are sold, there is another market where insurance is sold, but it's sold at different prices based on your income, health, and employment status, and there are rules about who can get their services paid for by the government, but 15% of the population is still left uninsured, and all the while, prices steadily rise for everyone. Sounds more like a market failure to me. Think about any good or service. There are basically two ways that we can keep prices down. For most of the things that we think about that are what we think about as being sort of commoditized, pens, notebooks, computers, phones, there is a robust competitive market that will bring prices down pretty well. It doesn't work perfectly, um, but in many cases, you can think about most commoditized goods that we consume and services are part of a competitive market, and that does something for price control. You can think on the other end of things that are highly regulated. So utilities, things where you wouldn't really have choice. Like if you need electricity, there's gonna be sort of one way to get it, right? So if there's not regulation in place, then people who have that kind of market control could just charge you whatever they want and no one would be able to afford electricity. Healthcare falls somewhere in between. It is neither highly regulated, though hospitals and insurers will tell you it's extremely over-regulated, but its prices are not terribly well-regulated, nor is it a competitive market. It's silly to think that people are going to shop for a doctor or a hospital when they're having a heart attack. And because of the way that insurance works, you never really see the costs anyways. So you don't know what you're buying. You don't know how much it costs. You don't know what your alternatives are, and you may not have any time to make those decisions. It's just not a scenario in which a market works. So going back to sort of core economic principles, we have a series of goods and services that don't work under typical market and for which prices are really not regulated in quite the same way as they are in other countries. And so we're left with a big price problem. Prices have just gone up and up and up and up. Uh, when you think about how the markets are consolidating and you're getting bigger and bigger players, right? Hospital systems that are buying up a whole bunch of hospitals and then insurers are consolidating becomes these sort of big behemoth industries doing a lot of the um, a lot of the negotiating and really the patients are the ones who get kind of left out on this. So the way that most Americans get their health care is through their employer. So it's called employer sponsored insurance. And it means that when you get a job, it comes with a set of benefits of which one may be sort of subsidized health coverage. You pay a certain amount per month, your employer kicks in an additional amount, and therefore you have a health plan and you're limited to whatever choices they give you. 
Now, there are three big exceptions to, um, to that. For people whose employers don't offer coverage, so typically smaller employers, people who may be doing contract work, you then have to find insurance on your own. Um, obviously, if you don't have an employer, you are not going to have access to employer-sponsored insurance. And that would put people into two buckets, people who are either sort of quote-unquote working age but don't have an employer, and then people who are retired. And in, so you can imagine that if you get the sort of working uh, working age employed group all sort of sucked up into employer-sponsored insurance, you're left with retired people who are typically covered by Medicare, which is a federally funded, federally administered program that essentially everyone with a working history in the U.S. qualifies for at the age of 65. Then you have Medicaid on the other end, which is meant to fill in the gaps for people who are living in poverty, particularly those who are not working or and we can talk about the philosophical debate here, but who um, are, would not be expected to be working. So children, pregnant moms, people with disabilities, and the common denominator there really is that you wouldn't be quote unquote expected to work. The people that end up falling through the cracks, if you think about where that buckets people, are people who are working, but who don't get, who don't get insurance to their employers. People who work, but don't make enough, who work are not covered and don't make enough to purchase their own health care. Um, people who don't work for a host of reasons, either they can't or they choose not to or whatever, people who would sort of fall in the in-betweens, maybe they were working and then lost a job, um, or were working and then took time off to raise family or you have other caregiving obligations. And historically, that has left us with a 15%-ish um, rate of people who have no insurance, which has come down some since the Affordable Care Act, but we still have a pretty big a pretty good big group of people who don't have insurance and they mostly fall in those categories. So what exactly does it mean for the government to regulate healthcare? It's complicated because the way that the healthcare industry works, it's not one system. There's hospitals, there's doctors, there's nurses, there's the facilities, there's all the materials, there's the pharmaceuticals. There's the insurers, there's the, you know, there, there are so many sort of moving parts in the industry um, that there is a chronic ongoing debate about how things should be funded and regulated. I think it's instructive to think about what some other countries do because you can get a feel for how we could set up a system. At one end of the spectrum is something like the National Health Service in the UK, where it's a publicly funded, publicly run system. So the government pays the doctors, pays the hospitals, pays the nurses, owns the hospitals for the most part, sort of like the VA in the US. We're sort of at the other end, but there's many, many, many pieces in between. So if you take Germany, Switzerland, Israel, there are a number of countries where the government will fund private insurance. So everybody has access to insurance. So the government gives each person essentially a voucher. You can go buy insurance. It doesn't come through your employer. It doesn't matter what your income is. You just get insurance. You can then select a private insurer and they do the contracting with private hospitals. So there's a whole bunch of different ways this could be done. And we have the most private industry driven version of it, which is to say that all of those players operate pretty much independently. And so regulation of healthcare is much more complicated than you think because it involves all those different players, lots of different intermediaries, 
supply chains and subcontracts and reinsurance and all sorts of stuff like that. So there's not an easy fix on the regulatory side and nor is there an obvious way to make it work like a market. So consequently, we're somewhere in between. It is a philosophical debate as to whether we should be pushing more toward market-based approaches or more toward um, regulatory-based approaches, sort of politically speaking, I guess. So are there any benefits to the multi-payer sort of compartmentalized system that we have going on right now? I think I can answer that question by being a little bit, I don't know, maybe a little facetious. You can imagine that the extremes of that are bad. So the downside of having one set package of benefits and one particular way that healthcare is delivered is that it doesn't necessarily encourage innovation. And if that is not in line with what you believe, it can limit options. So you can imagine if there was one public insurance company, it wouldn't be a company, that's one public insurance entity that insured everybody in the country and had full discretion over what could be covered and what couldn't, you get into a situation that many other countries see where things like reproductive health services become completely unavailable based on the sort of political changing tides of the day. Or, you know, people fear things like death panels if there were sort of government control over all parts. If you imagine the extreme of it, sort of totalitarian regime rule over your healthcare, like that sounds bad. And you can imagine all the way on the other end of it, that sort of the mishmash of different policies and providers and entities that we have creates a lot of inconsistency. I personally think that there is some value to having some amount of competition and innovation and sort of, I don't know, not discrimination in a bad way, but letting plans differentiate um, into, into places where people might have different priorities or goals or needs. We hear these terms like universal health care and socialized medicine and single payer get thrown around a lot. Can you speak to the effect that, let's say, single payer might have on this country? So I'll start by saying that I personally think that universal coverage is, as I've said, a moral imperative. I think it is inexcusable that we don't have that. That said, there are many ways to get there and they are not all single payer. So the debate is, as long as we start shifting the debate from should we cover everybody to how should we cover everybody? I think there are a lot of different ways one could do it and there are pros and cons to a lot of those approaches. So a true single payer system is not gonna happen in the US. It's just, it's not gonna happen. Insurance companies are billion dollar industries, like where would they go? So if you think about a single payer in the sense that some people talk about it, which is getting rid of insurance completely and going to just like everyone gets regular old Medicare, it's it's not politically feasible at this point in time. I won't say never, because who knows, but it is currently not politically feasible. Now, you could still have a single payer system and preserve insurance companies and you know all the pros and cons for those sorts of things. Like I mentioned, Germany or other countries do where everyone gets a voucher and you can buy private insurance if you want it, or you can buy public insurance. You could expand Medicaid and just say everyone gets Medicaid. And then if you want to buy more private insurance, you can. There are many, many ways we could get to universal coverage, but I think the least likely right now is sort of scrapping the whole system. The more likely way that we'll get there, I hope, is through a few key interventions. So right now, if you want Medicare, you only get it if you qualify for it. So I couldn't say, I don't know, Medicare sounds like a good plan. I'd like to get it. You you can't. So if anyone could get Medicare, 
that all of a sudden lets Medicare compete, which is kind of clever, right? Because it, it satisfies a little bit of the like competitive urge of sort of US policy. And so now you say, okay, anyone who wants Medicare can, can buy it. Your employer can buy it for you. You can buy it yourself and we'll put it on a sliding scale based on income. So you get it for free. If you have low income, you have to pay more if you have high income. Medicare has purchasing power and they pay much, much lower than many other groups for hospital and physician services, particularly hospital. Sort of the common wisdom is that Medicare pays about what hospitals could break even on. But in most cases, they're also taking care of a bunch of patients who are uninsured or Medicaid, which pays significant less, significantly less than their cost of doing business. And private insurance pays much more. And so hospitals sort of mush it all together and try to come out on top. And many don't, right? I mean, hospitals have been closing across the U.S. for the last decade, and particularly in rural areas or in impoverished areas, are closing all the time. So it is a really tough business model, even with that sort of cross-subsidization, because you've got, you have really variable payer mix. So there are some hospitals that will have 50% uninsured, 25% Medicaid, 25% Medicare, they're going to make a lot less money than a hospital that has 75% privately insured, which is going to make, you know, two or three X per admission. The current sort of way of doing business is chaos. Putting a public option in would put more people in at these lower rates and create some competition to try to bring down some of those private prices that are so high. But if we're put in as a public option, as opposed to switch everyone over right away, it would be gradual, which is kind of key for getting it to be acceptable for through lobbying and sort of politics is that like, you can't go to hospitals one day and say all of your revenue is being cut by, you know, a third. So then they fire a third of their staff and close their beds like it, that doesn't actually help anything acutely, right? It's not a feasible thing to disrupt a, a huge part of our economy. So the one reason that the proponents of the public option are proponents of the public option is because it allows sort of like a foot in the door to start saying, how do we get more people covered? How do we start to change the sort of competitive landscape of how hospitals think about their costs? Because it is likely everyone is going to have to take a haircut if we're going to drop costs, right? Pharmaceutical, pharmaceuticals cost too much, hospitals cost too much, doctors cost too much. There's not one bad guy. You can pick one. They all, <laughs> I mean, do insurers make too much money? Maybe. Do hospitals make too much money? Maybe. Everybody probably needs to adjust if we're ever going to get a control of prices. And so the more incremental solutions where you sort of push competition where you can and then put some regulation in where you need to is the much more likely way that we'll get to it. Again, for me, the starting point is we have to get everyone covered. And so the realistic way to do that, I think, is more along the gradual expansion of public programs to fill in the gaps and then try to fill it in that way instead of saying that we're going to switch over to be the UK next week. The way that policy gets made to take sort of a big picture view for a second is extremely incremental. So you can't scrap the whole system and start over, right? It would disrupt the entire economy. Um, it's just, it's not, it's not feasible. And so you're always thinking about what is the next incremental change that can be made on the system that we have. And occasionally you have a disruptive innovation and maybe not using it quite in like the Clay Christensen business school way, but something like Medicare or Medicaid 
where an enormous change happened all at once. So those were both passed in 1965. We haven't really done anything like that since then. I mean, the ACA was was hugely disruptive in a good way compared to things that had been done before, and it was very incremental. It took an existing program, Medicaid, and expanded it out to a slightly bigger group. It created a system around being able to buy insurance at the individual level and like, you know, made a platform essentially for shopping. <laughs> These were small changes if you think about like, we didn't go become the UK. And that was such a huge, huge political lift. So generally it's not that people sit around and think, gosh, how can we redesign a better system? It's that each group says, this is what I think should be done. And then the sort of politics and, and policies of the day, people then figure out what can we come up with that enough people can agree to that we can move sort of one step down the line. I wish I could say it was more intentional than that. It's clear that neither extreme solution would work perfectly in America. The challenge then for healthcare administrators and policymakers is how to cherry pick the good parts and put that into practice. So in this portion of the episode, let's focus on three areas, the pharmaceutical industry, hospital management, and community health. Big Pharma is a beast that requires at least an entire episode to itself to tackle. For now, Dr. Joint Maddox told us about how we might be able to increase accessibility of drugs and drug prices. Yeah, for drug prices in particular, the single most distortionary thing in the market is that um, Medicare can't negotiate drug prices. So when Medicare Part D was passed, which was under George Bush, prior to that, Medicare had not included prescription drug benefit, if you can imagine. So you have all these people, you know, older folks on fixed incomes, really having a difficult time affording their um, medications. And there were various sort of add-on plans you could buy and things like that, but there wasn't sort of like a national way for, for Medicare beneficiaries to be able to buy prescription drugs. So Medicare Part D was passed. And then the negotiations around that, the pharmaceutical industry essentially won a provision saying that Medicare could not negotiate prices which seems crazy, right? Like how, how could you prohibit that? <laughs> but they can't. And so therefore Medicare can't use its sort of vast purchasing power to, to be the negotiator that could go up against a big pharmaceutical co company. Again, thinking about consolidation and how there's really not very many pharmaceutical companies left. For pharmaceutical prices in particular, that's the biggest issue is that there's no big player that can negotiate. And so prices can just go up and up and up. And you know, if a patient has a terminal illness, if a patient has cancer, if there's a new drug, a new antibiotic, a new, you know, we want everyone to be able to have that. And it's, it's, a, it's a really difficult call. There's been a lot of really interesting experiments in this recently, like the state of Louisiana, for example, agreed to purchase a whole lot of treatment for hepatitis C through their Medicaid program. So they basically guaranteed a drug company, we will buy X number of doses if you will give us a low price. And so they were able to basically buy a whole bunch and get a whole bunch of patients treated that they wouldn't have been able to do unless they essentially guaranteed the drug company a certain volume. Like that's the kind of innovative stuff that would need to happen in a market-based system to get more people access. And that because of a lot of the rules, Medicare can't do that and lots of other programs can't do it either. But you can see that people who support sort of the market-driven idea say, well, there, there's a good example of people saying, let's strike a deal and we'll do what's right for patients. Let's move on to hospital management. 
We asked Dr. Joint Maddox about what she thinks are the biggest efficiency problems in hospitals and where the money goes when we pay for healthcare. To take your question one notch bigger, I, I think the biggest issue in thinking about efficiency and management is sort of delivering the right care to the right person at the right time is how non-system-y our health system is. So hospitals by and large do a pretty good job of taking care of really, really sick patients, right? We can deliver this amazing levels of complex care. People need heart transplants and implantable pumps and treatment for cancer that was fatal five years ago and is now a chronic disease. I mean, the amount of stuff that we can do is really impressive. And while it may not always be highly efficient, it's not as wasteful as I think sometimes people think. Because yes, we overuse MRIs for back pain. We also underutilize so much stuff for people who don't have access that like our healthcare cost problem is not just about utilization. We don't actually use that much more than any other country. And we do deliver like a lot of high tech, high cost care, but that's like, it's a little inherently American. Like it's a little bit about sort of like pushing the frontier. It's a little bit in kind of the zeitgeist of how hospitals think about themselves. The place where I think we really fail as a health system is in population health. So ideally, lots of the things that we do to people, we wouldn't need to do at all if we had had them enrolled in a health system as opposed to an illness system all the way along. So we put a ton of resources into being able to do the latest and greatest thing, and that's terrific. And if you have one of those things, it is amazing that you have access to that kind of care. But wouldn't it be better if we invested much more in primary care and outpatient care to keep people from needing those things? And that's where we've done a really, really bad job as a health system. So it's not that hospitals are doing the wrong or doing badly. It's that so much of our healthcare budget goes to like fixing what's broken as opposed to keeping people from getting there in the first place. And that's a fundamental philosophical shift that I think we really need to move toward in this next iteration of policy um, is thinking about how we can use policy to try to get hospitals and health systems to invest more in outpatient care, prevention, keeping people well, as opposed to only responding when they get sick. If someone comes to the hospital for a surgery, some of the things that they need are very specific to them. They need, I don't know, the hip that's going to be implanted or something, right? Then there's like the cost of keeping the lights on and the cost of the, the entire ICU team, right, of, of respiratory therapists and nurses and physical therapists and occupational therapists. So the benefit of having the backup heart surgeon that you may need if there's a terrible complication during something else. And so typically the money that comes in doesn't get parsed out exactly to different people from each item. Like a surgery doesn't sort of generate revenue that is specific to each one of those touch points for that patient. It is, but it goes into the hospital budget who then budgets out the necessary staff to make sure that, that all that can be taken care of. It's not an easy job to be a hospital administrator. All right, tell us, are doctors making too much money? Yeah, well, the hospital administrators are definitely going to make more money than you, but the um, doctors are probably paid a little too much. But it's not that all doctors are paid too much. It's that some doctors are paid quite a bit too much and some doctors aren't paid enough. So we should do a much better job paying primary care doctors, pediatricians, OBGYNs, you know, the, the groups that are not being reimbursed at the levels that they should. And we should probably pay um, some of the very high priced proceduralists less who are are getting a lot more per unit time. And some of it's about training. If you do a 10-year training program versus a two-year training program, there is some you know, difference in income, just like there is in any field. 
And I personally think that one way to get more population health focus would be to pay more for the people who do population health, right? We should be paying primary care and other sort of community-based services and those sorts of stuff. We should be actually changing the fee schedule to put more money into some types of, of physicians to get more people to do it, to be more attractive, to sort of support our system that way. In the last decade, and especially over the past year, it has become more and more obvious that social determinants of health cannot be ignored in this country's plight to improve its healthcare system. When we think about health policy to improve health, we should be thinking about education policy. We should be thinking about criminal justice policy. And we create the conditions for people to have very, very bad health from the time of their birth based on the zip code into which they are born. If we really want to make the country healthier, like we have to change that. It is both a moral imperative and an economic imperative to change income inequality and structural racism. So the first thing in making making sort of the country healthier and thinking about health is fixing the structural inequality. The second thing is in fixing the the broader approach that hospitals and health systems take. And that's moving more towards things like accountable care organizations, accountable communities, really encouraging um, hospitals and health systems to take responsibility for population health and paying for it. So right now we pay a lot of money for a lot of very high tech things and we don't reimburse for like social work, community health workers, um, you know, nutrition consultation, pill boxes for people, right? There's so many things that are pretty low cost, but in aggregate would be a very good investment. And we don't, we don't reimburse for a lot of that stuff. On March 23, 2010, President Obama signed into law the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare. There are a lot of planks to it, but its main goals were to expand Medicaid and make health insurance more accessible through subsidies for lower and middle income households. What were the largest shortcomings of the ACA and also what are some areas it succeeded in? I would say as a starting point, there is no perfect legislation. And so most legislative efforts you could consider sort of to be um, continuous. So Medicare and Medicaid were created and they've been updated and changed many, many times throughout the years. You never get it right on the first try. The problem around Obamacare was the conditions under which it was passed. So it was obviously a contentious political event. There was a death in the Senate. There was a special election. The replacing senator was a Republican when the deceased senator was Democrat. And so the bill that came out of the House did not go through its usual process in terms of there would normally be a bill in the House, a bill in the Senate. You'd reconcile the two and then everyone would come together and you'd sort of vote on that revised bill. Because that one election change shifted the balance of power in the Senate just enough, it got passed essentially through a roundabout sort of a reconciliation process and therefore there was a lot of political resentment against the ACA from the beginning even though it was a very very bipartisan bill at its core I mean Obamacare is Romney care right it was based on the Massachusetts stuff which was started under a bunch of Republicans but because of the politics around what happened it went through in this way that a lot of Republicans then felt was um, was sort of underhanded and inappropriate and there was plenty of backlash about it being Obama because he was black and there's plenty of racism and you know all the other things that we know sort of to be true around the unique politics of his particular achievements. So if you take those two things together, it led to a scenario in which 
The Republicans would not admit that there was anything right about the bill, despite a lot of it being very centrist. The Democrats would not admit there's anything wrong with the bill, despite it having plenty of problems. So no one did anything to fix it. And so in a more typical time, you might have seen a number of fixes come out to say, oh, okay, we put this into practice thinking this would go this way. Now we're going to revise it to shore up some pieces that never really happened. And so instead it was this constant battle of like, repeal the ACA, save the ACA, repeal the ACA, save the ACA, as opposed to just like, let's just fix it. Like, let's just find a way to come together and figure out where there are some very bipartisan fixes that can happen. Things like shoring up some of the stuff around insurance markets to make them both more competitive and ensure better access. Things like changing some of the value-based payment programs to be more updated. Like things that normally would not be politically contentious became politically contentious. And so now there's a lot of fixing to do because we're, we've missed what would normally be opportunities to kind of you know make little fixes along the way. How does it look like Biden is going to reform Obamacare? The Biden administration has a few priorities around doing that that have been, they didn't come up with them. They've been sort of percolating along since we've been stuck in this sort of locked scenario around the ACA. So the most obvious one is this weird gap. So in states that expanded Medicaid, you get Medicaid up to 138%. And so then for subsidies on the exchange, where you can like go online and purchase your own plan, the financial subsidies start at 138%. So if you're at 137% poverty, you should get assistance with Medicaid. If you're at 139% poverty, you should get assistance to buy basically free plans on the exchanges. In states that didn't expand Medicaid, you don't get anything up to 138%. And then as soon as you hit 138%, you can qualify for these exchanges. So there's some very weird gaps that just should have been filled somehow. And so that's a priority for this administration is changing the subsidies to be more generous and trying to figure out a way to get the remaining states that have not expanded Medicaid to do so. Those are the two biggest access goals. Overall, the ACA was incredibly effective on the access side. Right. It reduced uninsurance by a lot. It improved health outcomes in the states that expanded Medicaid. There are a number of success stories of the ACA. It didn't do much on costs, as we've talked about. (laughs) That's a little more contentious. So we'll see what actually comes up around costs. So we'll see what happens on that. But on the access side, you will see movement to try to increase subsidies uh, as a way to get people who are right around that threshold better coverage and then extend that up a little bit farther in the in the sort of income bracket to give people more support to get insurance, and then just trying to get the remaining states to expand Medicaid. Thank you so much to Dr. Joint Maddox for sitting down with us and teaching us so much about everything from insurance to the politics of passing healthcare legislation. She was articulate, insightful, and clearly very good at her job. After that conversation, I personally feel a little more aware and prepared as I inch closer to not only navigating medical school in the healthcare field, but also stepping out into the real world and paying for my own healthcare. It's honestly really exciting to know that the Institute of Public Health here at WashU is taking on these tough questions that we probably only scratched the surface of in the last 45 minutes. But that's it, guys. If you like the Masterminds podcast, make sure you follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Masterminds Pod. Or if you're feeling extra cool, you can check out our website, mastermindspodcast.co. Till next time.